Welcome to Season 6, Episode 9 of the podcast. And today we are truly honoured to be joined by Dr. Scott Stevenson. Scott is well known in the bodybuilding world with over 30 years in the gym and two decades of personal training and online coaching experience. Not only is Scott a bodybuilder but holds a PhD as a licensed acupuncturist, educator, which covers many things, yeah. and lover of dogs. And <laughs> like you were just saying, yeah. you've been on the road with your dogs. And I must say, um, I find most bodybuilders love dogs. And it's just... Yeah, everyone here is a super dog lover. Yeah. yeah. What, what kind yeah. of um, dogs do you have, Scott? They are all um, spoiled mixes. <laughs> I have a Jack in the Box, a Jack Russell Boxer mix. Nice. Oh, Jack in the Box. Yeah. So he looks Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's a maniac. She's a little nutball. Um, and I have a, a Black Lab um, Bloodhound mix wow. named Blitzy. And so she's got a classic Bloodhound coat coloration. Um, there's a sagittal crest on the head yeah. of a Bloodhound, so you can kind of feel. So that's kind of. I just can kind of, she had a little bit of the bagginess in her eyes, but she's got the webbed feet, and she has the body of a black lab. <clears throat> and my other dog, her name is Foxy, and she looks very much like a fox. Mm. A lot of people think she's a, she looks like she could be part Shiba Inu. Mm. And it's, yeah. it's so funny, like, Suki is a boxer mix, I'm pretty sure about that, but boxers and pits have a, have a common ancestor. Yeah. A woman bicer is the name of the dog. Like this. Yeah. And so, so people who have staffies, they're like, oh, she's a staffie. I'm like, I think she's a boxer. And people who have boxers, they're like, oh, she's a boxer. I'm like, I think she's a boxer. <laughs> and people who have Shiba Inus see Fox, like, oh, she's a Shibu. And I'm like, could be. And I, I downloaded an app. Someone mentioned this to me. It's called a Dog Scanner. You can get it for the iPhone at least. Okay. Uh, take a picture of your dog, and it'll, it'll guess at the, uh, <laughs> the mix. And it pulled up Nordic Buhund. Which I'd never heard oh, of. Yeah. No, I maybe go puffin hunting. The yeah. puffin hunting dog. And they've got they've got heads that can almost slide mouth. They've got like really flexible neck. The the hunters you you try to cut out a little bit. Yeah, I said they're they're a pet puffin hunting dog with a flexible neck. <laughs> that, that's uh that's what the boohunt is or Yes. Oh, okay. I, I, I was going to. That's the funny thing. She looks exactly like a Nordic Blue one. Um, I didn't know they were they were they were bred to hunt puffins, but as a as a usage. Yeah. Well, I went on the Facebook groups. So I'm like, I learned this breed because I'm so certain. Literally, the first picture that pops up looks almost exactly like her, except she has a black streak. So, but the, it's a very specific breed. You're the first person I've ever mentioned this to who had any idea what kind of dog this was. I'm, I'm, I'm on the Kennel Club committee in Kenya. I'm, I'm all about the dogs. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, you'll, you'll appreciate this story. And it, it, didn't, it didn't offend me at all. I, was, I kind of thought it might happen. <laughs> but she's a rescue. All my dogs are rescues. I found her. Yeah. Kind of a cool story, actually, which I can tell you guys if you want. But So I'm like, okay. So, you know, I think I have a, a, have a mix, which probably is, in a, in a sense, in a, itself a, an offense because, you know, She's a mix of a very pure, specific breed. And I, I posted a video of her playing with Suki. They play like maniacs. And immediately, 
10, 12, 15 responses. It's like, no, you don't have a balloon. It's like, there's just no way. It's impossible. It couldn't be. There's no breeder really around me in Florida. There's no, you know, logical way that that could possibly be like, she's a, she's just a husky mix of some sort, you know. Um, they immediately rejected it out of sorts because, like, this is just can't be that you'd have. And that kind of made sense to me, but she looks so much like um, the Boohoon breed. And, you know, you can have, you know, convergence there um, in terms yeah. of how they look. Yeah, so, uh, but... So, yeah, that was funny. So I left those groups because I'm like, if I ever post a question, they'd be like, well, who? Well, you don't even have one. So, like, why are you asking? <laughs> but uh, so those are my, that's my crazy crew. And, I love um, it. Awesome. Yeah, they're wonderful. Love it. Well, um, yeah. so Leon and I have just started Fortitude Training. And, uh, oh, really? Yeah, we, we, we've been, um, <laughs> well, we're, we're, ever since we, we had Scott, the other Scott McNally on, McNally. and yeah. um, and uh, we were like, oh well, we'd we'd been doing JP's training. We were like, and JP uh, is all about Scott Stevenson. So, so we were like, well, <laughs> let, let, let's try some, some, some yeah. fortitude. And let's just say we, we're in pain today. It's it's, it's brutal. It's, it's it's yeah. It's uh yeah. It's week two, and it's one of those like man. Ah, uh, should we, you know, start taking it down already? But we're enjoying it. What volume it. two are you doing? A what? No, no, two. Two, two, two. two. We, okay. we, we decided to, we, we, we wanted to start at three, but we said, no. let, let's follow the, you know, let, let, let's be smart with it. <laughs> no, I don't know that I saw your purchase, if you, if you guys bought it, but like, if you buy it, yeah. I've got a free board. Um where I've answered questions ever since the start. And I always recommend and just to get the feel of yeah. things and then go from there because on very much like, oh, I'll just, I've been training for a while. I can, I'm a maniac. I'm an animal, you know, and they, people go, and yeah. I know some, and the thing is that the, 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 the sort of the ironic part of that is the people who have that mentality tend to people that be the people trained the hardest and who can't handle tier three volume wise because they train so hard. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I suggest tier one to start and then move up and then you could just auto regulate. But if you're, if you're staying too sore and you're still two feet up, then pull it back to tier one. Tier yeah. one's totally fine. Yeah. No, no, no. Wait, well, this is only week it's, two. Yeah, so. it's week two. It's, it's good so far. It's, okay. yeah, it's, it's, we're, we're really enjoying it. Um, and like we were just discussing before the podcast started, we mm. only have free weights pretty much. So it's, um, mm. that can be a bit tricky because uh, like for some of the the pump sets and everything it would be nice to have uh, machines for that. Because we have a cable and, and free weights. You, know, you can't actually do, since the pump sets, I, mean, I kind of leave it as dealer's choice so to speak. You don't have to like, you can just make note of what you did. Like like Jordan for instance, he, he wanted to progressively overload everything. Yeah. So he would just do high rep straight sets on the on the pump sets, and he wanted the one of the one of the record those and logbook those. <clears throat> but I intentionally set it up if someone's being very um, diligent with their logbooking on the loading sets and the muscle rounds, even too. Yeah. The pump sets can be total auto regulated based on how you feel, even like going throughout the set. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it'll just be like, you know what, I'm doing this, I'm getting a little bit of a pump here, but I can just feel my tendons are not particularly happy with me. Mm. You don't have to do, yeah. like, you can literally, you could use bands for a pump set. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I nice. some yeah. old videos in my backyard when the pandemic first happened. When I actually, we talked about being on the road. I, my truck broke down. I was, I trained, I was about two weeks, I was stuck in Illinois. And I just had a field and bands to train with. Mm-hmm. And there's about, I don't know, 10 videos of me just figuring stuff out. I, I just picked up the heavy things I could find. Yeah. Like there was a long metal pole that I used to attach the bands to. And I uh, like stood on the bands. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you, if you saw I, those videos, people I, like, this was good. I, I remember watching them and thinking, here. Because, um, like JP used to say, you're crazy. And I'd watch you with the bands, and I'm like, he's killing himself. Like, it's, it's, it's just bands. But I, I, yeah, watched, I watched them. Right. <laughs> so you can do that. They're, like, I just take two sets of bands, and if you have a tree or, or like, your power rack, maybe one of you would stand on the rack so you don't pull it over. Um, but, you know, hook that to either side of the, and you can do, you can do, you know, a movement, you yeah. can do a, a pull down movement, you can do a, like a bent over rolling movement that way, mm-hmm. um, just with the bands. Yeah, and you're just good. literally just trying to create a fatiguing effect there yeah. and, and utilize that. And, and you'll know, like you guys have been training long enough that you'll know when you, you know, you've really whacked a muscle and then you're done. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's... we're keeping the pump sets light, so it's uh, we're following the instructions. We're not trying to, because it it, it it it's when you start, it's like you write down the program and you're like, ah, only only this, ah, okay, right. Then, oh. <laughs> some people find, and it's sort of their mindset, and they they have to auto regulate around it. And this is why I did this sort of intentionally that. The pump sets are the hardest yeah. for them because yeah. there's sort of no limit. Like you can just keep the set going until yeah. there's absolutely nothing left in the tank. So some guys think that pump sets for legs on day two, it would be in the, in the normal program, um, are, are the hardest thing that, that's, that they do. So they have to auto-regulate around that. Mm. So, yeah, but you, the way you're doing it is totally fine too. As long as you're seeing progression in the right direction, yeah. then it's yeah. a win. Yeah, so yeah. for people who are listening who don't know about fortitude training, Scott, could you just take us through sort of how you came to it um, and just a bit of your background as well? Yeah, so we have to go back to the Stone Ages here. No, I you know, that. And I, I scribbled my notes on tablets, you know, with a bit of stone, chiseled them out, you know, in Arabic. Um, so I had... Uh, Preceding fortitude training, um, I had been doing DC training for a long time. At that time, Dante had stopped coaching people, and some circumstances led to me being kind of the official DC trainer for a while. Mm-hmm. And that is DC training, as you find online, is a great program. But what, what Dante does is de facto DC training, and he gave me some levity too to do things. So I had figured out through years of experiencing doing that and working around some of my own injuries. Um, that uh, you know, there were certain things that were lended itself better for me making progress, and even ways of sort of staying with the confines. Someone comes to me to DC train. I'm going to stick with what Dante has to say, you know. But he gave me lots of levity there, so I learned a lot in sort of using that as a base model. And then I I uh, I, I found a system called Titan Training by Leo Costa. I'll give him credit. That's why mm-hmm. I even use the term muscle rounds. Mm-hmm. For that type of cluster set, that might be a question we get to. Um, Dante had done the same thing, a rest pause set. People don't necessarily know this, but 
he used that term because he knew that part of the idea for how he configured <coughs> that cluster set came from a Mike Mentzer who had who had used that term. It was a totally different set. It was like six singles or something like that with 30 seconds rest in between. Mm -hmm. People can Google and find that. <laughs> but he didn't want to like, you know, be someone who's stealing ideas from someone, so he gave credit. So I had done the Titan training and the way I, I wasn't able to really decipher exactly how the sets should be terminated, so I wavered on the side of going as hard as humanly possible and literally destroyed myself. I, I put myself first time in you know twenty plus years at that point, I truly overtrained myself. And his his clusters his muscle rounds, for instance, and I, I can't tell even look back at the book, and I, he really didn't say how to configure them, but they were six sets of four. And this is not a for those listening. This is not how you do a fortitude training muscle round. This is what I did with his. And he said you just progressively drop the weight. You do sets of four, and I can't remember even if he said five breaths or ten seconds. He may have said one or the other, and and I I configured that specifically so it'd be a known set. Um, rest interval and I might do like and he didn't care about what exercise so I would think okay, I'm going to do deadlifts and I do like something I could barely get bored with rest 10 seconds and then do like a double you know and the doubles like ah and then so that might be like or maybe it's the say it's racked so I might it might be like literally seven plates at the time for a set of four and then a double and I go to six plates and I do a set of four and then I do a set of three, and then I go to five plates yeah. and do a set of four, and then a set of, you know, maybe I get, you know, four to failure again. Yeah. So I had to have three failure points. And he was loading up like 11 or 12 of those in a, in a workout. And I was doing that, and I can't remember exactly how the program went. But obviously that was way too much. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one thing I learned there, which I knew from DC training, from doing Widowmakers 2, which is, and I bring this up, it's sort of important way I tried to configure fortitude training was that there's um, kind of a, there's a law of diminishing returns in terms of recovery and stimulus that you get when you take sets to truly to failure. So I set up everything in the fortitude training with keeping that idea in mind. So if you do a set of nine reps with, a, with the weight that you could have gotten 10 with, you've gotten a lot out of those nine reps. So this was even before the idea of reps and reserve was even even out there. I was I sort of was using that concept in my in the training. I just said you know leave one or two reps in a tank. I didn't use RER. Um, by the way, no one nothing really is ever uh, with more than like two reps in reserve in fortitude training. There's no like five reps in reserve. It's it's yeah. only for the sake of of what's convenient and makes logical sense. Yeah. Like not taking a weight to failure and then having to re-rack to bring the weight back to the, the beginning point. But I realized that you take a set to failure and that has a dramatic effect on what you do thereafter. So <clears throat> I took what I learned from Titan training and I made really good progress for the first, I think, four or five weeks until I, until I started doing too much. And, but it was a very high-frequency program, mm. and I took what I learned from DC training, what I learned from you know the years before that, and I... And also, I took from the scientific literature some things I picked up on and found, figured out with clients that worked well. And I took those ingredients, and the recipe of fortitude training was born from that. But there's multiple ways that you could take those ingredients and make a different program. So for fortitude training, the idea was um, 
One, be wary of failure points, but having those is important. So I think, you know, taking sets to where you really push yourself to failure so you can monitor progressive overload is important. Um, a big issue with reps and reserve style training is, especially if someone maybe goes for 10 or 12 weeks and they never really take a set to true failure, yeah. they don't learn how to exist in that I'm actually going to take this set to where I truly fail. Mm-hmm. And of course, it always should be safely done in a rack, the partner, what have you, with the spot. Um, so it's hard to know. Um, and you also don't get some experience there. There's something I think there's a very unique learning state that occurs when you get into that place where you've got a big heavy load on your back or you're picking up something that, you know, is just feels enormously heavy to continue to persist for those five, eight seconds. There's a mental call it fortitude, parts are for the fun. But there's something to be learned from that. But but also, you just can't go there and take sets to failure ad nauseum and continue to recover. So that was one theme. Another theme was, and I built this into the set types, that you can grow from heavy weights and you can grow from lighter weights. So those are the loading sets that are traditionally very DC training light mm. in their construction um, that you logbook. And you come in on the days when you do those loading sets and the logbook is going to be your biatch that day. You're going after it. You're taking it down, and you're owning it. And on the other days, there can be progressive overload as well. Um, the pump sets, which we were talking about before, maybe not so much. But you can grow from very, very light weights, relatively speaking. There's sort of a landscape of hypertrophy. 30% of a one-rep max can be used to create muscle growth. So take advantage of that. And I sort of generalized the program there's probably, I haven't seen this exposed in the literature, but there's more than likely some spectrum of adaptation whereby some people grow really well from big heavy weights mm-hmm. and some people can do really, really well from lighter, more pump style training. And we mm-hmm. see that, for instance, with Jordan, big heavy weights serve him very, very well. Yeah. And if you look, <laughs> look at a lot of pros who get very, very strong too, but there are examples of pros who had phenomenal physiques who never were tremendously strong yeah. we just did a lot of volume a lot of pump style training like with the pro split or the bro split so yeah. i've got both of those stimuli in there um in those two set types and then i included i think one of the questions made for today was a cluster set and i like the muscle round format just there's a million ways you could do this. Six sets of four is not a magical um, combination that I came up with, you know, that I had to like, you know, sacrifice something to the gods to get like the magic numbers. You know, this is the way the astrologers put this together. This will make you grow. It could be five sets of three. It could be three sets. Dante does three sets to failure for a rest pause set with a total rep range in between there. So what I wanted to do, especially, you can, it's easier to look at the muscle rounds as a way to sort of pull this idea out, <laughs> was take advantage of something that I would sort of figured out. The literature is there. There's a really kind of nice way of piecing together the research literature, literature to, to see this phenomenon. But the limitation for um, us in terms of producing muscle growth by training in the gym probably isn't in what the muscle can handle loading-wise. I think it's more a matter of what happens 
psychologically and what that means in terms of uh, our endocrine responses, the nervous system, probably the immune system too. So you'll get sick. If you're natural, you're, you'll have elevated cortisol. Your testosterone levels will go down if you're a guy especially. You'll end up having adverse effects on the, re the systems of recovery. And, but, the but the muscles can grow really, really well. And if we look at that idea that the, the greatest impact on those recovery resources comes from those failure points, which are important, but if you overdo it, you can shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah. The idea then would be, and this is where the reps reserve notion is a nice way to sort of uh, examine this, is that load the muscle with as much, with lots of volume, high quality reps coming close to failure, but minimize also those failure points. So as the example in the muscle round, you would do sets of what are supposed to be four reps. And this is where literally it's up maybe one or two percent of the people who post muscle rounds on Instagram. I've had like a couple people now like come up to the challenge and actually describe them properly. And I've got a whole video. It's a 40 minute video, I think, on YouTube on how to do a muscle round. You guys can maybe link it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. yeah we will. Yeah, but the, but the idea is you're picking a load. If the first time you've done this, it's maybe a 15 rep max. So that's kind of your loading zone. Loading sets would be heavier. Pump sets would be lighter. So this is the one that's in the middle on the, the yeah. loading spectrum. And this will also allow you to get hopefully three sets of four. And you're using about a one-to-one -one work to rest ratio. So that's five breaths. If you can control your breathing enough to make that pretty consistent. If you're training legs, you might want to use a watch. Because you're going to be breathing very fast. And those... Those rest intervals are going to fly by. And then let's say you might do four, five breaths for 10 seconds, four, rest, four, and then you go to failure safely in the, with the machine or with the spot so you can climb out of there and start again. The idea is you're going to do six sets total. So you get two reps on that fourth set. That would be your only failure point. So, But there's still more to be had. We can still keep the volume pretty close to what each muscle round um, is by doing six sets, you would just drop the load down. So you can then do two more sets. Those are going to be very high quality, high quality reps because you're pretty close to failure, but you're not going to failure again. Mm -hmm. So imagine yeah. a scenario where like, let's say you do four, 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 and two, and then you're like, you know what? I'm going to just destroy myself. You, you drop down the weight and you, you go to failure again. You drop down the weight and you do a failure again. You like a triple drop set where you just drop down the weight once and you have three failure points. That's going to be categorically different than what I've sort of set the, the muscle rounds up to be where you go to failure only once in the set. It could be the fourth. It could be the fifth. It doesn't just an example. It happened to fall on that fourth. Yeah. Then you drop the weight down and then you recenter yourself. Make sure you've got good tempo, perfect form, mind-muscle connection is dialed in, laser-like focus, and then you do the best high-quality reps you can with a lowered load, like 20 to 30% lower than what you had, had started the, the muscle around with. And that way, you've accumulated the volume, and you've got lots of those high-quality reps, loading the, putting the focus on the muscle, which can handle lots of volume, and not going into that failure point, which is the ones that really kind of whack you and leave you feeling like, okay, I'm not doing anything the rest of the day because I just kind of destroyed my CNS. So that's how I set up the muscle round. So those, those are, um, they kind of fall in the in-between zone. 
Some people live and die by progressive overload, so they might take on the day they do those in the in the system. And this is something I, I, I mention this because people use muscle rounds in their other system, and I, I don't mind at all. I actually like it if people beg and borrow these ideas because that's the purpose to help people is they would have a muscle round day or you have a muscle round day in fortitude training, and it might be, you know what, I'm going to pick this lat pull-down machine or this leg press, and every week when I come through, I'm going to try to I'm going to try to destroy this thing until I eventually I plateau. So I might get four, 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 and two. The next week I come back, I get four, 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 and then I get just two again. Drop down. You pound away at that weight until you can get six sets of four. Only one failure point. So if you can get more than four in that six set, you keep going. Sometimes people I've seen like let's just six sets of four. This this is where I kind of laugh at this. It just says six sets of four and like. Well, what if you picked a really light weight? You just like to do six sets of four. Like, okay, we're done. And then I'm up around. It's like, I used to five. I used to pick dumbbells and do curls and just be done. Though the idea is to pick a stimulating load. But if you do, for instance, under guess your weight, which may happen, you'll get good at this after a while. It's it's pretty pretty easy to pick up on. Yeah. Um, someone would take that last set all the way to failure. So they, if you, for instance, you get four reps on the on the sixth set. Yeah. And that's all you could do. That's a world of difference between getting 14 reps. You're like, okay, I really need to move the load up a, a bit. So one person in my same exercise, progress their way through the muscle round. Once they get six sets of four, add load and keep doing that until they plateau and say, okay, I did five months of this leg press. Now we're going to do another exercise. Someone else might be like, you know what? I need some variety. You know, I like to challenge myself, and this is kind of what I suggest in the book, mm. is they have a pool of muscle round exercises mm. for each muscle group or each muscle. And they're like, okay, today uh, I'm going to do this one. And it's like, ah, it's the hammer string standing squat. I did that four weeks ago. I'm going to whip my own ass. I'm going to beat what I did then with this. And that's fun. Like, yeah. you know, it's mm -hmm. like the lottery of challenges on that day. Yeah. But it's still, it's still progress. Mm-hmm. So, and motivation, like having fun in the gym is, it's so important. Like yeah. the world of difference between like, you know, I really don't want to do this, that you can see that in your, in, you have mm -hmm. trainees you work with. It's, it's only different between that and like, oh, I can't wait to dig in on this because I know I've gotten stronger on almost everything since then. And I know I'm going to make that, that previous PR look like nothing when I get under the, under the load this time. So those are the components, a heavy loading, a higher rep type of thing, and then a, a cluster set, which gives you more volume with minimal adverse effects on the nervous system, endocrine system, immune system. And then variability in recovery resources is huge, um, as well as how people do with frequency too. So mm -hmm. I've got different volumes here. There's a basic and a turbo version. The basic version, you train everything about three times a week. And the turbo version, everything is about four times a week. So that's hot. That's pretty high frequency. And I've had people come to me. Uh, there's been a couple of really kind of funny instances where people are like, okay, uh, I'd like you to actually train me or coach me. Um, and uh, and we're going to try to bring up my legs, for instance. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I, what I think we might do, given you've never done high frequency, let's start doing legs like three times a week. Doesn't have to be fortitude training, just yeah. a higher frequency program because you might not have, have tried that. And they're like, 
what? Like, you can't do that. I'm like, we're not talking 20 sets. We're not going to do a Ronnie Coleman leg workout three times a week. (laughs) No, it's going to be like just a few sets um, so that you can recover appropriately and take advantage of that frequency. And there's a whole whole story on why I think some people, and there's some interesting research that I talk about. It seems like almost every podcast, every podcast, but it's so, it's so good. Actually, it's so important that some people are going to do better with higher frequency and some people are going to do better with, with lower frequency. And same thing goes for volume as well. So I built that into the program. I had, I had a kind of a group of beta testers when I, when I created this just to kind of work out the as many kinks as I could before I actually put the book out. And I had two guys in the um, in the beta testing group. One guy was, uh, um, you know, he was a, a really good coach but did not have good genetics um, for bodybuilding. He tended to harbor a lot of body fat, didn't have a whole, didn't grow muscle really well, but he could handle a ton of volume. He was a workhorse. Yeah. And the other guy actually was a, a pro wrestler, had a really good physique, and was an absolute animal in the gym. The first guy could train with volume tier three and recover. And he was, he had this like a drop. He could train that all the way through to a show. And he wanted to like have that kind of volume just so he could have a little bit extra caloric expenditure so he could drop, create the deficit necessary to drop body fat. Mm-hmm. The other guy's like, like, man, I'm going to have to do an all you can eat day all day Sunday just to handle the volume <laughs> recovery from volume tier one. Wow. But for him, like those, those, you know, those sets, the, the pump sets, mm-hmm. the loading sets, those were all death sets. Like he's, his life and the life of his entire lineage is on the line unless he just destroys the weight there. Yeah. So, you know, different recovery resources and, you know, so there's so many variations there in how people will respond to those things. So I built that into the program too. And that's, that's something I think that, um, isn't made probably appreciated and I mean, this is just could go off on a kind of a soapbox, but if you pick a program, you know, that program may work for 50% of the people, but the other 50% of the people won't work for. So mm-hmm. you're going like, so how well does program X work? And it's like, it was worked awesome for me. It's great. It's like, it didn't work for me at all. That's very confusing. Right. Yeah. But that's just how it is. It's like, it's like asking, like, what's, what's the best flavor of ice cream? <laughs> it's like chocolate, vanilla, strawberry. Yeah, like, yeah. like, there's no, like, there's no one size fits all answer to that. It's, it's, it's preference. In this case, what fits so many aspects of how you train and how you recover your genetics, maybe even your epigenetics, mm. your lifestyle, et cetera. So having some built in flexibility so there can be some form of auto regulation in there is part of it. And the, um, the other thing I guess I'll add, so these are the ingredients. So we've got different volume tiers. We've got different frequency. We've got auto-regulation of exercises, too. So it's not like you must squat, you must deadlift, you must bench. None of that. It's pick what works for you. Um, the different rep ranges, the different set types, keep things nice um, and variable and fun. So it has to be fun. Like, yeah. literally, you could take a pretty crappy, poorly devised program and make it fun. You know, and like if someone were hypnotized into thinking this is just going to be the greatest day ever, and it's really kind of an asinine program, yeah. they're going to do well. They're going to make progress, mm-hmm. you know, to some degree, I would imagine, as opposed to someone who really doesn't want to be there. Um, and also stretches. So one of the things that um, came from DC training was 
was the extreme stretches. And I and and that's uh, you know give Dante full credit there. There's literally research that substantiates this idea. So an extreme stretch, the way DC training set that up, is you'd, you'd finish your training of a muscle group and you stretch after, not before. That can impair your performance at the gym, possibly, through the overstretch. And you would do typically a weighted stretch. They're a loaded stretch. You might hold a dumbbell in a fly position or um, you might do like a stiff-legged deadlift with you know a weight on the bar and you hold that for 60 to 90 seconds. So you're doing a prolonged isometric contraction. That's creating a metabolic stress. There's a blood flow restriction that's involved there because you literally are not going to get any blood into a muscle that that's producing contractions of that magnitude. And that's another stimulus for growth. Um, and what I, yeah, so what I did was, but I wanted to make that something that can be um, auto-regulated too because I, I know from having done the DC training, there'll be some days like, like you guys, like now, if you're feeling really sore, you make it through your workout, you don't necessarily, like, oh, my God, like I feel like, you know, if I stretch too much, I'm going to tear something. <laughs> That's not the smart day to go try to pick up the heaviest dumbbells you have and do it really no. <laughs> so you could do on that day just a flexibility stretch, literally yeah. just work through a range of motion, work out the kinks. You've mm -hmm. got plenty of stimulus. Your recovery is already sort of on the downside. Leave things alone. Use the stretch just to at least sort of refresh the connective tissue memory, mm. so to speak. I mean, there's not mm. a mechanism per se, but yeah. literally there is some, um, there, to some extent, connective tissue will remodel itself based on its resting length in skeletal muscle. You see that in casted muscle. You see that in people who sit like this at their yeah. desk all the time because they're working. You know, their posture will change based on how they are. So it's not a bad idea, especially if you're someone who works the computer a lot, for instance, to do a pec stretch periodically throughout the day. You know, if you get, and I've noticed this too, this is sort of a, a bro experience. Um, let's say you train the legs and your just legs are just constantly sore. You don't tend to squat down to pick things up yeah. as much. You move very differently, right? So... So, you know, it's been up. You're dive bombing, you're, you're kamikaze dive bombing the toilet every yeah. time you go to the bathroom, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but so stretching is, is something that's definitely <laughs> minimized in the, in the course of someone's life. They're, or maybe if they don't stretch when they even, even before they train, they're only stretching and maybe getting through some of that range of motion comes through the actual resistance training. Mm -hmm. So I think it just makes sense. The literature doesn't say, you know, stretching prevents injury, what have you, but it just makes sense to have some stretching component in there mm -hmm. um, just to realize that. So I've created kind of three stretches. There's an extreme stretch. If you're feeling like, you know what, I can, I'm still aggressive with this. I'm going to do a heavy DC style extreme stretch after I've trained a, a muscle group for the day. Um, that would be one choice. If you're really sore, recovery's down. You would do the flexibility stretch and just try to work out the kinks. It's a good way to kind of check in with the muscle and see what you've done. Yeah. I stretch actually a little bit beforehand just to see where I'm sore. Mm -hmm. And then um, then I have what I call an occlusion stretch. Um, so the idea there is to, to just basically get into a stretch position and do a kind of an auto-regulated intuitive stretch where you're contracting the muscle in the stretch. So you're doing an isometric contraction. But in the angle and in the way that you want, in order to um, maybe, let's say, as an example, you did a bunch of incline chest work, 
and you let it hit the lower chest. You might do a stretch where your arms up high, so you're hitting the lower fibers um, of the more costal fibers of the chest during the stretch to even out the stimulus in that muscle that day. I think one of the things this is this I noticed as I trained with these with Doc with. with with uh, Dave Henry doing DC training for years, and we both noticed pretty rapidly, it seemed like we got better separation in our quads doing DC training. And one of the things that's done there is a quad uh, stretch. Mm -hmm. And the way I still do this today, it's not really typically loaded, it's more of an occlusion stretch, is do kind of a hurdler stretch, they call it sometimes. Yeah. Put a, your foot back behind you, like on the pad of a, a lat pull down or something where you can rest the foot. And then, so you have knee flexion, and then you try to get hip extension. So you're driving your hip forward. Mm -hmm. And when, I, when I've done fortitude training camps, the, the leg stretching is the thing that's most often neglected. People just don't want to do it. They don't do it. So yeah. we're finished training legs. I'm like, okay, let's get that stretch in. That could be the worst part of the training. <laughs> but when you get it, it's really, yeah, you know this. You, you've done it, right? Yeah. You get into that position. And you drive the, the knee back with the knee inflection, your, your heel at your butt, and you're really stretching out that rectus femoris, you're getting a stimulus there that is, is pretty novel. A lot of people don't naturally activate the rectus femoris. And you do that and intentionally contract that while you're trying to extend your knee against a movable object while you're stretching the hip flexors, the rectus femoris being one of those. You'll create a, a tremendously novel uh, stimulus in the quad for many many people and i think that's what actually gives separation in the quad for the most part is having a well-developed sort of if you think about you know you've got the lateralis and the medialis mm -hmm. muscles and the rectus morse in the middle those are rounded and big yeah. and then the rectus femoris is developed so it's having really good uh development of those muscles so that the, the rounded muscles create a groove in between mm -hmm. and you see a separation down in the musculature of the quad yeah and uh so I just yes. wanted to ask about the stretch. Is yeah, is there like a rule? Cause uh, like we we sometimes like uh, even for me in between sets, I find the stretch sort of just works for me, and I'm able to go into the into the set, you know, much much better if I if I do my stretches in between. Is it is it okay to do them in between, or is it only at the end? Uh, the way I if you, if you feel like just for your groove and performance, some yeah. stretching makes sense just to keep loose. Yes, the um, the occlusion stretch and the extreme stretch are intended to be a stimulus for muscle growth. Mm. Basically, that's especially the extreme stretch, the occlusion stretch too. Yeah. So you're going to impair. You're going to have kind of an unknown factor impairing your your performance. Mm. So let's say you're doing um, the loading sets and yeah. you're, you're zigzagging and you've got a a set rest interval hmm. and one day you know you do 30 seconds of really hard stretching and the other day you do 10 seconds that's a totally different amount of recovery and that would be a rest interval so you're kind of throwing off your your metric hmm. for progressive overload because you've got another stimulus when you should be resting yeah. <laughs> at least you know should be the way I you know instead of the you could do whatever you you would like to do hmm. but especially the occlusion stretches it's like that's that's up that's the a user's choice basically yeah. how hard you stretch um so if you're doing that sort of intuitively you're kind of throwing off that could, you could stretch really hard and, and like lose three reps mm -hmm. even on a day where had you not stretched at all you would have done much better so 
I have those very much at the end because the stretching can actually impair performance. There's, you know, the literature's pretty yeah. clear if they have people, you know, yeah. you dampen the, the, the stretch receptor, um, the muscle spindle reflexes. So I like to have that at the end. But if you feel, you know, if you feel like, man, I got a little kink in my hip or something and you won't need to stretch out, then then do it by all means. Like, don't don't say, I can't stretch. I have to sit here, you know, and rest. When you when your, you know, your greater sense says, yeah, I should stretch something out before I go into this next heavy set. You got to be smart, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I must say, so, what, reading through your ebook and just from hearing you now, what I really like is that anyone can adapt it to, to them, which, like you say, not many programs do. And that it really is for longevity. Um, and mm -hmm. yeah, again, not all programs are like that, you know. And a lot of people just, yeah, completely destroy themselves with one program. Yeah. And rather than thinking, you know, how am I going to use this for longevity and for fun? Like, you know, when, yeah. like when we, just before we started it, we were like really bored. And it does make such a huge <laughs> difference. You're like, when there's something you're looking forward to, because this is, it is, I mean, we've used principles of everything in your training, but not how you've laid it out. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. yeah, having that enjoyment back makes such a huge difference. Um, and, and you know, the, the last, not to cut you off, but the last piece of recipe that you guys, this will be coming up now, is periodizing how you do the training. So the, yeah. the how long you train before you do a cruise yep. is up to you. Mm-hmm, yeah. So... No, which is which yeah. is good, and and yeah, and that and that can change. You know, you can auto-regulate that if you want, or if you, um, you know, just how it how it sort of fits into your lifestyle, and then you can just carry on, which is amazing. Um, yeah, and there's, it's it's interesting. There's and this is, I mean, you go sort of digging towards the research literature. You can see this in some of the few studies that have made progress measurements in the middle of a training period mm -hmm. so oftentimes it's like eight weeks of training 12 weeks of training and we, we have before and after and I, I even even alluded to this and mentioned this with the titan training and this is what i wanted to avoid with letting people auto regulate how long they have um i call it a progressive blast so i stole dante's term blast and cruise yeah. but i progressive blast and intensive cruise because the cruise is the deload is set up differently. It's not necessarily yeah. a deload, but it's a devolume. Yeah. And in the research, there are some studies that have actually demonstrated that, let's say it's a 12-week study, between zero and six weeks, you're making progress. Yeah. And then the progress can actually revert itself. There can be less progress. That's because those people should have had a deload. They should have pulled back at some point. So they had an effective program that they persisted in too long. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like it's sort of like a math. I just this is this is so so silly. But imagine you want to have a study where you you see how well people like a particular kind of food. So you give them all a standardized massive amount of the food, and they eat it. And like you know, so they eat as much as and they eat like oh that was really good. I'm nice and full. I would give that an eight out of ten rating. That was a pretty nice meal. It's like no, you're not done. You still you got two thirds more to eat, and you force feed them. Until they get to the end, you know, and they're just nauseated and they go, and like, how do you rate this? It's like, that's a zero. That was horrible. I'm going to go throw up now. Thank you very much. That was the worst thing ever. So that is what can happen when you get a canned program. 
that says this is what you do for 12 weeks and you don't step back or you don't broad regulate your volume down mm -hmm. is you miss out on that and sort of I set up a generic blast cruise ratio about three to one mm -hmm. so you could go for three weeks and this actually works out really well interestingly enough you could go for three weeks and then take a week off mm -hmm. or you could go for six weeks and take two weeks off if you stick roughly with that ratio you don't lose any ground by having a blast it's not like because it's still out of eight weeks if you did three and one three and one or six and two it's still six weeks of, of progressive blasting in fact if you do it right when you deload you spring back and a lot of people who've never really done deloads and are getting a feel for like when and how they should do those or the way i do it it works pretty well they'll come back stronger after the deload so it's not it's it's time away from the progression but it's actually a, a step forward for progress-wise because you basically reap the rewards of the previous work you put in during the progressive blast. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so those are the those are the components. That's the recipe, and you can mix it various ways. Yeah, no, I love that, and I think yeah, because you you trained yourself into the ground a bit. Um, yeah, before I started Fortitude at. Uh, well, I also think the vaccine had a part to play because uh, uh, after we got the vaccine, instead of resting, I was like, screw this, it's, it's just... Yeah, so I pushed it and I, 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 I dug my hole deeper, so <laughs> took two weeks yeah. off, two weeks off, and then we started a fortitude and the two weeks were magical, so... <laughs> yeah, you come back straight. Yeah, I just, it just feels nice mm. training now. Good. And when it comes, you you're quite big on um, nutrient timing, and and um, could we go into that a little bit? So more sort of the your sort of take on nutrition. Um. Sure, it's it's one approach that here, here's the thing, like the big picture on 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 nutrition, kind of in my mind. You take like like Weight Watchers has been around for forever. And I don't even know what their success rate is. I'm not. A, I don't. I have no connection with Weight Watchers in any way, shape, or form, other than knowing they've been around. I mean, probably 40 years or something like that. I can't imagine. I can't remember when Weight Watchers wasn't around. What's that, Andy? As long as I've been alive, and I'm 41, so yeah, yeah. So and I'm, but I'm 51, so it's yeah. It's, I had no it's idea that I've been here that long. Jeez. Yeah. So, but it's a system, right? And it sort of tells people kind of what to do. So having structure in a diet is, you know, highly important, you know. Mm -hmm. like even something like, you know, you need to get this many grams of protein in each meal and you need to eat at this, this time of day. Um, so nutrient timing is just one way of structuring things that seems to work, seems to work well for people. It kind of tells you when you're going to have certain kinds of meals. You would have your your meals that have a greater caloric surplus around the times when you're training. So nutrient timing is not just an inch, having an intra workout. It's actually, uh, you know, timing the nutrient based on all sorts of things. So having something in the morning when you wake up, you know, just sort of as someone who's having trouble making gains, uh, you haven't had any food coming in. You probably got something in your bloodstream depending on how late you ate before you went to bed. But having something to break your fast, your breakfast is uh, is a good idea for someone 
just um, just to have some protein pacing going on there, have protein coming in throughout the day, and be able to fit in the nutrients that you need. So if you're eating um, an excess of calories and having trouble fitting all those things in, probably not the smartest idea just to like try to put two giant 2,000 calorie meals yeah. in at once. Spreading the calories out helps. So having an early meal makes sense just to get ahead of the game the day goes on. The nutrient timing idea then as it relates to like an intra workout or I call it a peri-workout recovery supplementation mm -hmm. um, period is is basically just, and this, this fits, the research is mixed on this, um, and the underlying physiology or nutritional ideas here is simply to keep, have the recovery process started as soon as possible, and we do, do that using food. So, for instance, um, if someone ate a sizable meal an hour before they train, and that has no impact on how they're training, it doesn't make them feel nauseated or what have you, they're going to have elevated insulin levels, they're going to have available carbohydrate, glucose, they're going to have protein, amino acids, uh oh, I see a pop. And he's Sorry, got lots of dogs. Squirrel for me. Yeah. Um, so that will be, they will basically, they have a, a, an intra-workout available in the form of that meal that they've taken in. Um, so that may work perfectly for someone because they just don't want to be bothered with drinking something in the workout. Most people will find if they give it a go, at least in my experience, if they, if they do add an intra workout, um, your stomach will adapt to this. Generally, you can get better at handling that food coming in. Mm -hmm. um, now, on the other end of the spectrum, you may be, and this is how you know I, I sort of first started doing this years ago, and the, it's obvious to kind of go with the, the easy example is when I was taking in what's been kind of the highest number of calories when I would be like 6,000 calories a day. And that would be like six 1,000 calorie meals. Um, so I had to start early. Yeah. And what I found worked was I'd have, you know, maybe the third 1,000 calorie meal of the day, <laughs> two hours beforehand. And then instead of, let's say, I have that meal, let's say I trained at three. Um, I could do that sometimes when I had my gym, for instance. I have the meal at one, and then I could start training. And if I train from, let's say, you know, three to 4.30 or five, and then tried to put in the other 3,000 calories between 5 and 10, that was tough as opposed to taking in 1,000 calories in an intra workout mm -hmm. and then having a meal at 6 and 9, another 2,000 calorie meals, 2,000 over those two. Because I was basically multitasking. It's simply a matter of getting those calories in throughout the day, and I can handle the 1,000 calories. And that's where a highly branched psychic dextrin, Using a hydrolyzed protein, something that you know is easily digestible, easily easily assimilated, basically, mm -hmm. um, because it's already pre-digested for you. Mm -hmm. uh, but you don't have to do those things um, if you're, you know, just, you can actually find there's studies that demonstrate an effect just from like six six grams of essential amino acids will positively impact protein synthesis after a workout. So if you're someone who you know wants to use a scoop away. And, you know, 25 grams of carbs just to have something there because, you know, you've got a half an hour drive home, you know, and you feel like you get pretty hungry if you don't. That's fine, too. You don't need to use, um, you know, you could just use a, even a whey concentrate if your stomach's okay with it. You could use a whey isolate and maltodextrin, you know, which is, which is very, very cheap, at least here in the state, mm -hmm. and be just fine with that. 
So the idea, you know, physiologically is to have the nutrients there. And I always sort of use a, an example. Let's say um, you train chest, shoulders, and triceps, and you do calves and abs on that day too. And then you do like a little bit of a cardio, kind of a warm down thing because you just throw a little extra activity in. So your workout starts at 3. You train chest. You're done with chest at 325 or 330. And then you finish the other muscles by 4 o'clock. And then you get off the treadmill by 4.30, and then you have your drink, like, right away, and then you've got some gastric lag time. So it's about 4.45 before you've got nutrients coming in that are going to be serving for recovery of the chest muscle, which you trained over an hour before that. You're actually jump-starting the recovery process by taking those nutrients during the workout because you have them there. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're recovering from them. You're basically serving the recovery uh uh, uh, process yes. for those muscles you train at the beginning of the workout by having the intro workout there. Um, and it, you know, for lots of people who got to drive home from the gym or what have you, then it just, it makes, it's a, especially let's say someone eats at noon or one and they train at five and they would be just starving by the time they got home. This is a way to at least like take the hunger off. Yeah. So there's numerous, numerous reasons, just practically speaking, why you'd want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the data does actually show there's a couple, some, some good studies, and they're cherry-picked. I think it's, it's somewhere between 100 and 102 on the Muscle Minds episodes. I go into some of these nutrient timing studies, and there are a couple studies that have demonstrated when, at least from the, uh, the dietary recalls, calories were the same, nutrition was the same, there's no difference in overall macronutrient calorie intake, but the timing in and of itself made a difference um, for gains over the course of a training period. So the way I look at this, and it's, it's an interesting, um, it's an important, another, another sort of dip into the science, is that when you see a, a, a scientific publication that compared two groups, a control group and an experimental group, and you don't see a difference between the means there, you run the statistics, there's no statistical difference. We use our standardly accepted probability of 5% or less that we made it incorrectly, made it a, um, a statistical error there. Um, then the scientists will be able to say that we wouldn't expect that there's a difference between these two treatments, the control versus whatever we, we gave to the experimental group. And that is something we can generalize to the public. But that doesn't mean that there weren't individuals for whom that would have been um, an effective way to go about things to make make improvements. And if you see the individual data, you will see that. there's It's a bell curve. There's going to be outliers, and there's going to be people on either end. I, I Now I just have to introduce this study that I like to talk about. You guys have probably heard me talk about it, but it was beautiful because these researchers were, they did such a nice job. So in the initial study, they want to look at basically frequency and volume and whether um, that plays a role in muscle gains. And they used a really nice experimental model where they train one leg one way and the other leg another way. So the same subject. So you have basically, it's like doing twin groups with the same person. So everything else is the same. Even even the diet's the same, exactly, because it's the same individual. So the diet for both legs is the same. Imagine that, right? So they, they vary both volume and frequency. So we can't say, you know, which was the most important factor here, but one leg got trained five times a week for three sets of like eight to 12. 
and the other leg was trained two times a week for three sets of eight to 12 to failure, just knee extensions. Mm-hmm. So just looking at the quad, and they looked at muscle growth. And in the first study, compared all those groups, the gains were the same. Didn't make a difference. Volume and frequency is the same. Nada. No difference. Then they went and they looked because they were working with these people and they had the individual data and they went and they examined the individual responses and what they did was they they plotted these and I have if you'll see if you look at the Muscle Minds um, podcast we got the visuals there five times versus they just grouped the two or three times together and about one third of the people did better in terms of muscle growth with the five times per week training about one third of the people did better with the two or three times a week training, and one-third of the people, it didn't matter. There are some people who were extreme responders, and there are some people, there was one person, one subject, that didn't respond in either case. <laughs> Nothing worked. They're kind of a non-responder in this case. So, but if you looked at the first study, you would say, ha, it doesn't matter. Like, the science, quote-unquote, proves it. And this is exactly why I always am a little wary of someone who says, especially in a very soft science, a biological science like exercise science, that you've proven something because you don't prove things when you're using um, the statistical analyses that are used in in a biological science. You're just creating evidence that points you in one direction. You can do a a proof in mathematics. You might be able to prove something in a a court of law or in physics you could prove the existence of a particle because it once was there. But you're not proving anything, and here we have it. It's like the, the, there was no. The, if you looked at that first study, it would say it proved there was no difference. Well, that would be false to say because for that person who did much better with the five times, they obviously had a very different experience. So that wasn't proof for them. Yeah. So the same thing holds for the nutrient timing. I think mm-hmm. you know for some people, um, especially if you look, you can get an, uh, get an idea. You know, if someone you know hasn't eaten for a long time. They eat at noon, they don't eat during their workout, they've got a long drive home, when they get home, they sit, they say hello to the family, et cetera, et cetera, and it's, you know, two hours afterwards, and there's even even some studies showing that you'll impair gains if you wait too long. Um, a little bit of research of that idea. Um, that person is probably going to do really well with an intra-workout, just simply to get the calories. Yeah. Some people, the timing effect matters. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it's a matter of like, and of course, you know what I've had, I've had clients before who are running on budgets who just use weight concentrated dextrose for their intra workout when they're trying to gain and their GI got used to it. They didn't start off with, you know, a 2000 calorie uh, shake. That would be a gastric disaster, yeah. but, <laughs> but, but they worked their way into that because that's what they're that what's and actually that can end up being cheaper than food sometimes, mm-hmm. given how you know how low that costs nowadays. At least in the states, it's easy to get. So that's kind of the general story on the nutrient timing. Mm-hmm. I like it because it um it allows someone to structure and sort of progressively move their food up. So, example post show, someone might have a diet that's been very very low in carbohydrates. And we want to kind of reverse diet them out. What I typically will do is say, you know, if this works for them, it makes sense. Maybe it worked in the past. They're used to this pattern. We'll progressively overload, so to speak, the food that's taken in during the workout. So have a big, solid intra-workout. And then the next big meal would be a bigger one. 
And then when they stop, when the, you know, that would inch their, their weight upwards and move things, you know, an appropriate pace. So their, their muscle gain or regain is, is making pace somewhere, you know, that makes sense. They're not gaining 20 pounds a week or 20 pounds in a month. And then you add to that first meal in the, the post-workout recovery period. And then when they stop making gains there, you might add in the second meal. And I've taken clients and just added into that period where they're taking massive amounts of food. Yeah. But those other days would stay just pretty much the same. Those mm-hmm. would be kind of unchanged. Mm-hmm. Um, assuming it's not, mm-hmm. it doesn't create like incredible hunger where it's you know yeah. distracting and they can't work. Yeah. So it just gives you a structure to add food. And then, then you might add food on those non-training days. Um, maybe at the same time of day because you've set up a circadian rhythm that works really well. It's kind of cool actually. Um, or during the time of day when someone has more appetite. So it's like, you know what? I don't want to add more in this post-workout and get your workout period, but I'm kind of hungry at noon. That seems like it's the meal when my body's telling me I need a little more food. So you would add meal to uh, food to your non-training day, noon, lunchtime meal. So, but that's, that's how I would use that as a structural component for varying the diet. And then I keep that in place. Typically, I keep the, the post-workout and peri-workout recovery meals in place um, during a dietary period. So you're kind of matching what the body needs, so to speak. So you've, I mean, you've trained and you've put in the, into, into a motion the, the, the process of building muscle, especially in the off-season, or at least remodeling the muscle. So you have an increased metabolic need for protein. Your protein synthesis turned on. You might as well work with that, taking those nutrients there. And as long as it's not hurting, you know, that's a one way to structure it. And you can, you can kind of like, okay, so where's the data? Like, what do you kind of say with this? Well, imagine the situation where you're like, you know what? I'm just going to do the exact opposite of that. I'm going to have, on like as far as spaced away from my meals or from my training periods, lots of food. Yeah. And then I'm going to have nothing for five hours before I train. I'm going to train at night. And I'm not going to eat until the next day. So you don't have any food coming in for recovery. Yeah, you're, you're like, you're like, oh, God. Yeah. So that, you know, that's one way to sort of like, you know, analyze whether it makes sense to work in that fashion. So that's kind of yeah. like my my take on nutrient timing with in regards to the peri-workout recovery supplementation idea. Mm, interesting. Andy, have you got any questions you're in? And his internet. Hello, this is No, none that I can think of because we've covered like loads of stuff. Yeah, you just sort of, already, I'm just trying to think what we wrote down on the list of questions and everything. Of the listed questions, but what was on your website, Scott, that was really interesting is that you said Western science, Eastern medicine. What what is uh-huh. it, does that fit in with your acupuncture? Do you still practice that? Yeah, you know, I, I have to be careful. Um, I am a, I, I maintain my license. Yeah. Um, I will eventually probably go back to that. You know, when when I have a friend who like hurts their ankle, you know, or um. Uh, you know, every once in a while, my family members, what have you, I'll treat people. Um, I've got, uh, my dogs actually have an acupuncture vet that we use. So yeah, we use Chinese medicine there. Um, yeah. Works really well with dogs. Well. Oh yeah. Works phenomenally well. I had it on honey. My dog died last month. 
years ago she got hit by a warthog and her tail went a bit droopy. We uh -huh. did acupuncture. Oh, right on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's the acupuncture and then there's the herbs. Like the Chinese medicine is a complete system of medicine. Yeah. So I have to, I have to be careful because I can't practice telemedicine with Chinese medicine. Like there's even a specific ruling in uh, in Florida. Um, like a, a guy had petitioned to want to be able to like like read. You can read tongues in Chinese medicine. You look at someone's tongue, and like some people, yeah, yeah I know. There's experts that read the tongue. It's like. It was actually, if you get good enough at reading a tongue, too, it used to be like, like back when I was in school, especially, and I was really used to like reading tongues. I'd be like, okay, I don't want to know. Like, I just, I learned too much just from looking at your tongue. But you stuck your tongue out. Like, wow, you really are unhealthy. Like, oh my gosh, you're really blood deficient. That tongue is really pale. It's got a lot of dampness. The coat on your tongue was really thick. And I'm like, okay, I need to stop that, you know. Um, so you can't do too much, but, but it's, um, uh, I look into those things. So mm -hmm. like, for instance, I, I, I can, you know, suggest people use like, there's some Ayurvedic herbs from Himalaya Herbal, which I mentioned in my Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach book, mm -hmm. use those. There are some, there are some, you can get, you can get a lot of Chinese herbs on Amazon. So mm -hmm. there are some things that, you know, I will, I will suggest, I very specifically say this is not coming from a, when you're not my acupuncture patient. Mm -hmm. So I have to be careful when I do that. But um, that's what I, you know, hope to do is, is eventually be able to like have enough time. I'm too busy with other things because things just kind of come my way. I'm mm -hmm. very lucky in that way to be able to have a small like part-time practice mm -hmm. where I can, I can work with people too yeah. um, in that regard. Because I mean, like some of the things like I, I, when I go into supplementation, for instance, just thinking about herbs in my Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach book, um, yeah. Some people are like, you know, your supplements don't work. You know, there's only a handful of supplements with really good um, efficacy uh, studies supporting them. You know, creatine, um, you know, if you want like an ergogenic aids, like beta alanine, maybe bicarbonate, those sorts of things, you mm -hmm. know. But if you look at what a, a bodybuilder is doing or someone who's dieting down for shows and any of the physique divisions, um, you know, having a healthy uh, GI system is is paramount mm -hmm. for making gains for someone who's really trying to push their physiological limits. If you can't get the food in, you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, if you're dieting down and you can't sleep, having a good sleep remedy yeah. is really, really important. Um, you know, taking care of your microbiome. So, you know, that's where there's some Chinese herbal formulas that can that can be helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and some you, you can't really shotgun those. And be, be wary of someone who does suggest that to you. You can't really say, um, you know, you've got insomnia. I'm going to give you chest this. There is one herb. I'm not even going to say what it is that sometimes people can use because it helps people fall asleep. It helps a good bit mm -hmm. for most people. But it's a very specific diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So you, you come up with a pattern in Chinese medicine. Yeah. You feel the pulses. You look at the tongue. Mm -hmm. You do what's called a 10 questions. Where you ask about everything from how they sleep. To their sex drive, to what mm -hmm. their poop looks like, you know, you know, you name it. Yeah. And then you say, okay, this is the formula that we need. These are the points that we need, and you holistically um, tackle the problem from that perspective. Yeah. So it's hard to do that, you know, with someone who's overseas or in another mm -hmm. state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. but I have a lot of sort of Eastern influence, I think, into my thinking. 
you know, which which probably just you know it's there. Yeah, it's embedded in what I do. Well, well I think it's funny now it. that everyone everyone wants to look at their tongue quickly in the mirror. So look at my tongue and check it out quickly. <laughs> well, I I tell you, like there and there's you know there's you can also do facial analysis. Like one of my instructors back in when I was in school, um, apprenticed with someone who was an expert in reading the face. So, you know, there's various features you come with the face and there's, you can do a five element analysis on people, wood, earth, wood, fire, earth, metal, and water are the five elements. Mm. And you can throw people like you do a constitutional analysis based on that. And he said when he was doing his training and he's, he uses this in his practice, you have to be careful because you, know, you can just look at someone you're like having a nice conversation you're making eye contact and you're doing all the things exactly but then he's like he's seeing all this stuff he's like he's reading all it's like yeah. it's like he's reading the person's mind you know he knows more than he wants and like every once in a while he said he'd be walking down the street and someone would come. he's like whoa i didn't want to know that like, okay you have to mind his own business to some degree because <laughs> you can see so much in those folks yeah i can imagine yeah. But I, I really yeah. like that it is a it should be a holistic approach yeah. and um, you know I, I don't know much about Chinese herbs and everything but I think that's really yeah really interesting but like you say you've got to yeah for some of those things you need to be in person I mean yeah to, well, to well my really... name of my business is integrative bodybuilding mm -hmm. you know yeah. so it's like integrative medicine so I, mm -hmm. I try to like bring in all ways of thinking so um, I have a bit like the, the whole chapter in my book is ways of knowing. Yeah. So there are certain ways, like a really good, um, really good example is blood flow restriction training. Yeah. So the Japanese um, is a researcher who basically came up with katsu training. Sato is his last name, I believe. Mm -hmm. He intuited that. It just came to him. He's like, I, if I recall, I'm re trying to recall now because I have the paper where there's like kind of a a historical perspective paper that he's written and he he was um uh i think he was like sitting you know um indian style mm. or maybe in a lotus mm. position or something like that and he you know noticed like that's a meditative thing and mm. you have to sort of watch the pain as a third person perhaps and sort of see mm. how it is and i think it came to him as like this is a muscular stress mm. that's ischemic based and there's pain there yeah. and he's like i wonder i think it just he intuited that that could be added to muscular contractions to create a greater a stimulus for muscle growth. And they'll use the, the katsu clinics in Japan are, there's entire clinics that are based on blood flow restriction as a way to rehabilitate and work around injuries or to try to maintain muscle mass. For instance, in, in older folks who have been really sedentary for a long while, yeah. they will, um, they will do blood flow restriction while they're walking on a treadmill and you can evoke muscle mass increases that way. So just because the blood flow restriction causes fatigue yeah. it, it, and the muscles are required or the nervous system is required to use a novel activation pattern and use more muscle mass than you would otherwise, you get more loading on more motor units and those motor units then will respond by growing. Yeah. And wow. he intuited all of that. Like, that's and amazing. that kind of came to him. I don't think it wasn't in a dream. Like, no. I mean, heck, uh, you know, the, um, the polymerase chain reaction, Terry Mullins is the guy who, mm -hmm. who, who figured that out. 
I think he he was on a he was on a um, a trip. He was on an I think he was on an LSD trip <laughs> when he and he's driving along in Hollywood, you know, um, and it came to him, you know, and then he knew like this is how we can do this. And the P- PCR is used far and wide now. You know, he got a Nobel Prize, and then I think he retired, and now he, he was a surfer for a while at least after that. But um, so there's different ways you can know things. Those can come to you, and sometimes. You know, a lot of times bodybuilders have figured things out long before the scientists have kind of brought them into practice. Yeah, yeah. And this is where guys like, for instance, Brad Schoenfeld is great, you know, because he was a trainer for so long and he, he competed himself a little bit, you know, but he knows that he's done so many studies, mm. that, like, you know, this fast cardio matter, you know, so many things, his insights, things he studies comes from having been in the trenches and, and, yeah, and had to yeah. figure those things out. So, yeah. That's um so yeah taking from Western medicine, Eastern medicine, mm-hmm. your intuition, you know what you know what you just think is right, what someone else may have, may have told you, um you know and like all those things can serve you in some way, shape, or form. So like uh, integrating things is really really big for me, especially like that's that's why I think that study is so great mm-hmm. because you look at that first study and they just left it at that. Most studies just tell you what would happen on average, mm-hmm. but is there? There's no average person. <laughs> Responses are all different, and they followed up and they published that. And mm-hmm. that's so vital to know is just because if you have eight studies, but think of it this way: and this is being um, positive, you know, and, and optimistic, which I like to be. But if you have if you have eight studies and only one of them shows a positive effect, well, then it worked for somebody. It worked for one of those yeah. eight studies. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's going to be like that's going to work for everyone. We can say that with good certainty, and it's not going to be a trip. I wouldn't spend you know your life's fortune on that supplement or you know dive into that approach, but it may very well be something you can take from. So that could be integrated in some way, shape, or form. So that's that's the way I like to use the science because um, you know individuals or bodybuilders are individuals, um, and they're training with their individual training um, programs as opposed to. If bodybuilding were like truly a team sport where you're like, okay, we got to pick the training program and I got 20 people I got to train, well, then those studies would be much more applicable because that's how you'd have to kind of do it. Like, I can't like have everyone doing a different volume tier and different, different types of, you know, pump sets and everything else. Um, So that's that integrative approach is really, really important in Chinese medicine is, is one thing that, you know, when I can, I like to least point people to that I, mm-hmm. I send lots of people to acupuncturists locally so they can work through the things because i say oh that's a chinese medicine thing man yeah. go see someone they're going to probably tell you this and you can get that fixed yeah. like tennis and golf elbow i'll tell you a, a mm-hmm. funny story while i'm on a good ramble here mm-hmm. there was um when i was in school i was uh i learned twain ah is the body work that i that i do with two years of twain ah so lots of very much like massage it's actually mm-hmm. a lot like art Mm-hmm. Um, as it turns, I think ART may have borrowed from, from the twain that I do. And, uh, so I was doing practice hours on anyone. And of course they hated that. I go to, I was personal training at a gym, kind of part time. And I would go to, I'm like, Hey, mind if I work on He's like, Oh, I guess if I have to get another massage, I guess I'll do it. And I would practice whatever technique. <laughs> yeah. They hated me. And, uh, one of my, um, my, one of my best friends, his name's Mike Gustafson, um, this back in Arizona still. He had, I don't know if it was tennis elbow or golf elbow, and uh, it was a bit of been bothering him, and 
there was a Western physician, a surgeon who used to come in and train in the gym, and Mike would kind of chat with him on the gym floor. <laughs> and this guy was very, um, kind of very set, very smart guy. He was very accomplished. The Western medicine was his his way of, of thinking through things. He didn't know much about Chinese medicine, so that was that. And he had his way of training. He had like, um, he was, and I, and I, I, I like this, and I, but it's, it's an interesting phenomenon, I think. I see um, guys that I think maybe were engineers or, you know, have retired who are very, very smart, and they go in the gym, and they do these really novel, unique things. Yeah. You've seen this before? But, yeah, and then, yeah. yeah. And he liked to, like, do, like, he did, he would do, like, bench presses that were way below, below above his one rep max for, like, three or four inches. Just thought the heavier the better, and, like, it's like if he went down two more inches, it's, it's that, that's the end of his reputation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I remembered him because he was like, oh, my God, we're going to be calling 911. Oh, okay, he got the rep. Thank goodness. Okay, I can put the phone down, you know. Yeah. That's kind of what it was. So I remembered him, and Mike, he was, you know, talking with Mike, and um, I think Mike asked him, like, you know, what do you think of my, my tennis elbow? And he's like, oh, just rest and take some monsteroidal anti-inflammatory. And it's like, okay, you know, so – Mike came and literally Mike was always really responsive to whatever I did. And I think, I think, I want to say I treated him only one time or maybe, maybe twice just with Twain up. Yeah. Went away. It was gone. Mm. The next week the guy comes in, you know, for his regular workout and the topic comes up and, um, he's like, he's like, you get, how's that golfer's elbow or tennis elbow going? He's like, Oh, it's gone. He's like, Oh, the Ben says work. He's like, no, my, my friend Scott, he did body work on. He's like, what? did body work on it. It went away. He's like, no, it doesn't. No, it, no, it didn't. That doesn't work. <laughs> he's like, he's like, no, it really does. He's like, he's like, no, it doesn't. He's like, he literally said, no, you're, that is not the case. That did not happen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and Mike had had it for like three months. Yeah. Like, like yeah. and all of a sudden, like, it was like gone and like literally went, it was gone within like three days. It was yeah. like, I mean, it could have been coincidental, I guess, but the chances are pretty low. Yeah. You know, um, but he just flat out refused to admit that. Like he just couldn't. He couldn't bring that into his paradigm, yeah. and that, that's okay. But I remember it was really sort of, sort of funny. So I think we can miss out on things. And like when I went to acupuncture school, like I'm like I'm just been. I'm a. I was a college professor. I just finished my PhD and my postdoc, and I'm doing research. So I'm like, show me the data about all this stuff you're saying works. Yeah. And it's like, well, the data is that they people have been doing this for thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and whether it's a placebo effect or what have you. So if something people have been doing things for a while, chances are there's something there. The mechanism could be placebo. The mechanism could be physiologically. The mechanism could be something that's, you know, as of yet unrevealed. But it's worth, it's worth at least considering. So I kind of try to keep an open mind. It works. It works. Whether it's placebo or not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's um, actually a, a guy named Ted Kapchuk. I've mentioned this several times on podcasts, but it's pretty cool. He uh, he wrote one of the best overview books. If you want to like figure out about learn a little about Chinese medicine, the Web That Has No Weaver is a book a book that you can get on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Ted Kapchuk, um, and he now has gone on to research. Uh, he started doing I think in conjunction with acupuncture, but he's now re- a researcher digging into the mechanisms underlying the placebo effect. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. and there's like um, 30 genes or so that are involved where they've been able to demonstrate that the genotype of determines 
the susceptibility to the placebo effect of individuals. Gosh, that that is really interesting. We'll have so to it's, oh, it's very cool. So like out. um, mm -hmm. catecholomethyltransferase is a big gene. There's been several studies there. And that's in, involved in breaking down dopamine. So dopamine is an excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. And the placebo effect is connected to expectancies. It's like what yeah. you think will work. So it's like, imagine two people. Um, one, one is like, you know, they believe nothing. They think you're trying to fool them all the time. And the other one is like, oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Let's do that shit. Let's make that shit happen. Right? Yeah. Well, what, there's underlying that, those, you know, may or may not be the case, but underlying those different types of um, worldviews, so to speak, or approaches to things, is going to be the level of excitability in their brain. And this catecholomethyltransferase, COMT enzyme, has different activities based on which gene you have for that. And if you have higher activities, you break down dopamine more rapidly. Mm -hmm. So the dopamine levels don't stay elevated. So yeah. you're not as excitable. And your expectancies of like how fun something's going to be or whether someone tells you something's going to happen are going to be diminished. Your, your psychological, the psychological influences of someone in an in a authority position are going to be less. So if I say like, oh, man, this pro, weren't you trained, you guys, weeds. Literally, you're going to be wanting to spray pesticide on yourselves because you're going to be growing too fast. You're not going to know what to do. And you're like, oh, my God, like Scott told me this. And, you know, Dr. Scott, Dr. 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 He says that you must know. So you believe it. And, of course, it's going to happen because yeah. it's just going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, they've, they've actually found that's a really important gene. And, and you can actually um, – there's a drug. They've done a, a trial, actually, with a drug that – can inhibit the COMT, um, and but when you do that, then you reduce the breakdown of dopamine, you elevate dopamine levels, and you enhance the placebo effect. <laughs> so, so vitamin E does that as well. Vitamin E actually inhibits COMT, and there's a couple other supplements that can. So, like the thing that I'm, you know, thinking that, you know, will be probably a, a pharmacological, and this is mentioned in the paper, this is not my idea, um, is to co-administer. So you have, like, for instance, antidepressants. One of the things they're trying to figure out is antidepressants have started working better in the past decade or two, and that happened to coincide with, um, especially in the States, it becoming legal to advertise for drugs. So... You know, a lot of people have, a lot of depressed people in the U.S. And I don't know if you guys, I don't have a TV, so, but I know of these, these commercials. And you're watching the Super Bowl or you're watching whatever, and all of a sudden this, this uh, you know, advertisement comes on. It's like you see someone who's really kind of sad, and, and it's like, oh, your life's not going the way you, way you should, you know. And, you know, there's a way out. There's a way that you can make this happen. It's use our antidepressants. You know, and then the next scene is the person's like, you know, skipping through yeah. the tulips, oh, the dogs chasing them, you know, and their the butterflies are all around and everything's wonderful. And then, then they give you all the side effects. But yeah. those those commercials are widespread, mm -hmm. and those have been connected with people's expectancies regarding antidepressants. They're like, you know, it used to be like, oh, the doctor's like giving me this antidepressant, and I really don't even want to take it because yeah. it's like. That I need antidepressant. What's wrong with me? To was like, oh no, everyone's taking them. Like I just saw, I've seen five commercials in the last three days on antidepressants. 
So now there's an expectancy and a different social stigma and antidepressants are working better because there's a, a, an enhanced placebo effect because you really believe they're going to work. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, and I, gosh, I don't even want to say this now, but, you know, this is, there's so much related to supplement companies selling stuff. If you think something's going to work because, yeah. you know, every mis a living Mr. Olympia told you it's going to work, yeah. <laughs> then it's going to work, right? Um, look how huge they are. So, um, but you could co-administer drugs with other drugs to enhance the placebo effect. So some drugs, you know, work because there's a placebo effect. Placebo yeah. is the best, most effective drug there is. So, but if you can pharmacologically manipulate yeah, what's going on in the brain <laughs> that changes your expectancy in association with those drugs, you can make drugs work because they, of their mechanism of action or whichever, whatever they may be. A lot of times we don't even know. Um, and or because they're expecting and they're thus having a better placebo effect. And then you get a two for one. And that's, that's a smarter way, I think, to, you know, to use drugs at least is to at least you can do that more along the way, you know, then that's, that's something over the future. And, you know, I guess you could, could, I'd much rather see them spiking, um, you know, protein powder with vitamins, you know, actually have effects on games because it can, it can quench the stress. If those start having C-O-N-T inhibiting drugs that you find in, you know, in your creatine, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but, but anyway, there's something to say for believing in something working, you know, yeah. um, so if it works, it works. And I'm okay with placebo effect being, you know, behind almost everything. As long as, as long as you're not like knowingly, you know, robbing from someone, yeah. you know, pilfering, yeah. like, you know, cause, you know, charging them massive amounts when you're knowingly giving them um, a placebo yeah. and yeah. just like, you know, uh, kind of cheesing them into believing it's going to work because you're such a good salesperson. I'm not big on that, but um, it's good to, it's good to think things are going to work. Yeah. So. No, no, it, it truly is the, the power of the mind. That That's interesting. We'll, we'll definitely look that book up. Um, yeah, put it in my Oh, yeah. I've already put it in Amazon cart. Probably okay. get it. <laughs> yeah, it's a Kindle for like 10 bucks. I think. Oh, it's a Kindle. Oh, oh, we'll get yeah, it then. Yeah, and, and I, I can send you that um that paper. Oh, sorry, Andy. Yes. I didn't hear you. I said anything's on Kindle, guys. Go on. I know. Yeah. Yeah. No, but yeah. for us, sometimes with the region, it uh, some books we don't get them. So uh, it's it's usually I just I just order the paperback, right? and I I don't mind it. So it's, right, yeah, cause, I like paperback too. Yeah, nice to have a bookshelf. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. takes a long time for things to get out here. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to ship them out. Um, but I think I think that's that's it for this podcast anyway but that was really fascinating um thank you so much scott for taking the time to come on to our podcast and we'll haven't read your book yet but that will be next on the list as well um but we'll put i've got your book you've got i've it, got your book back okay. in london though i'll bring i'll bring the book and you can have it because i've added a little while oh, nice. So send you guys the PDF if you like. I'll just send it to you. You can so you can read through it. I see. Um, 
Yeah, you can. It's clickable too. So. Um, oh, awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, no problem. Thank you so much. We appreciate that.